John 8, verses 31 through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What you need to know about the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they are all different people writing about the events that happened in Jesus' life. They all have a little bit different angle and a little bit different audience. And in the Gospel of John, there's this really strong emphasis on what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at abiding in his word and proving to be his disciples. Next week, we're going to look at what it means to abide in his love. And then the third week, we're going to look at what it means to abide to bear much fruit. And my insight into this is that that I think all three of those are connected. So all of us as Christians want to bear much fruit. But we cannot do that apart from abiding in his word, abiding in his love. So we're going to dig in today, abide in my word. Uh, The big idea of where we're going is this, is that Jesus desires to share his life with us. As I look at the Gospel of John, I see statements like this in John 10.10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 1, 4, he starts the book of John saying this, In him was life, Jesus, and that life was the light of men. Or, you know, one of the last chapters of John, he says that by believing you may have life in his name. And as Jorge was saying earlier, Jesus points out uh, to his disciples that apart from him, apart from his life and faith in his life, we can really do nothing. And to be honest with you, I don't live a lot of my hours and minutes that way. And I have a hunch that you don't either. Jesus wants to give us 
abundant life. Do you believe that this morning? And do you think you need it? He wants to be one with us. Um, and he wants us to, to, to feel and embody his love and his life. Uh, two years ago, uh, some, some friends of mine and I, two friends of mine and I, were in Los Angeles for a few days for some meetings. And uh, while we were there, we decided to take a stroll around town and ended up in Hollywood, where all the tourists go. And uh, as we were driving down one of the streets in Hollywood, uh, you know, you're always like looking for famous people, right? You're, I mean, it's just what you do when you're in Hollywood. And so we're driving along, and I'm in the back seat. Uh, my one friend Mark is driving. My other friend Andrew uh, is in the passenger seat. And Andrew says, yo, stop. There's Julius Randle right there. Now, if you don't know who Julius Randle is, he plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. But more importantly, he used to play for the Kentucky Wildcats, is where I'm from. And so uh, he, he stops the car. We are, we are in, you know, four-lane, I mean, lots of traffic. He stops the car, slams on the brakes. Uh, Mark cannot get out of the car because he's driving. Andrew gets out of the car. I say, what the heck? I'm, I jump out too. I follow him. And we get into this little kind of boutique store. I mean, it doesn't even have a name on the outside of the store. The store is so expensive. You know what I'm talking about? And so we go into the store, and uh, the owners of the store, we can tell, are like, hey, what's this riffraff doing in here? And so we go in, and Andrew, as bold as he is, he, like, knows everything about Kentucky basketball, and particularly Julius Randle, like, knows about his family, his girlfriend. So he's, like, entering into conversation with them, like, hey, you know, how's, how's Lindsay doing? You know, how's, how's life? You know, how you liking it in L.A.? You know, it's a big change from Kentucky. And he's just starting into conversation like he knows the guy. And you can imagine what Julius Randle does. He's like, who is this guy? Like, I don't even know this guy. Here's, here's my point about this. A lot of times we treat God like Julius Randle treated us. Like we, we, we act, uh, uh, we, we think that what a relationship with Jesus looks like uh, is that Jesus is annoyed with us, he's annoyed to hear from us, uh, and he doesn't really want to be around us. But I'm convinced from the scriptures uh, that this isn't true. That, that uh, from the gospel we see that Jesus wants to be very near to us. I mean, think about Jesus. He, he's the guy that stops a parade uh, uh, really about him to identify with an ill woman who needs to be healed that touches him. Uh, he's the guy that stops a really fancy dinner with the Pharisees to identify with this sinful lady that's likely a prostitute to see and to hear her. Jesus is always stopping the crowd to see people. And this is what Jesus does with us too. Jesus Jesus wants to know you, and Jesus wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to just know about him like I know and Andrew knows about Julius Randle. He wants you to know him. In fact, John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life. Like if we could sum up what eternal life is, if we could boil it all the way down, what would it be? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. In John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, this is eternal life that they know you. Not that they know about you, but they know you. That they know you in Jesus whom you've sent. Jesus wants us to know him. He wants to share his life with us. Now, the word abide really means to remain, to stay, to dwell. Jesus wants us to dwell in his life. When you, when you think about, we're going to look like, in a couple weeks, we're going to look at this idea 
of a vine and branches that Jorge mentioned this morning. It's all about life. It's all about the way to experiencing life is staying connected to the vine. Because the vine has the roots that support the fruit. Apart from that, there is no life. Think about this. Andrew, Andrew Murray, uh, a pastor and author from, from over 100 years ago, writes this. During the life of Jesus on earth, the word he chiefly used when speaking of the relations of disciples to himself was this. Follow me. You remember this in Matthew 4 when Peter, James, and John are fishing out in a boat and Jesus says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, follow me. Come and be near me. Come know me. But when about to leave for heaven, picking up on the quote here, he gave them a new word in which their more intimate and spiritual union with himself and glory should be expressed. The word chosen was abide in me. When you look at the Scriptures, there's one word that shocks me that the Apostle Paul never uses. You know what it is? Disciple. He never uses the word. Look it up in the Bible. The Apostle Paul never, use, never uses the word disciple. And why does he not? Because he explains a more intimate relationship with our Father. He, he says that we are his children. He says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses this very familial language because this is Jesus' intention with us. And Jesus, friends, has more life to give us than we could ever imagine if we would just remain in Him. If we would just remain in His Word. Andrew Murray goes on in the same book to, to talk about what a definition of abiding is. And here's what he says. Abiding in Jesus is nothing but giving up of oneself, surrender, to be ruled and taught and led, and thus resting in the arms of everlasting love. That's what it means to abide. If you think about bearing fruit, it is an incredibly passive activity. Incredibly passive. I mean, when's the last time you saw the apple tree in your backyard really stressing out if the branch was going to bear fruit or not? It's passive. Here's what I'm convinced of, is that we have to labor to stay in Jesus. Like, that is the work, is laboring to remain in Jesus. That is the work of the Christian. And discipleship, that relationship, is where we abide together and we help each other abide. It's a collective thing. And at our church, we're really passionate about discipleship. And we think that not only are we called to obey the message of Jesus, which is the Gospel, but we are also called to follow the method of Jesus. Like He shows us how to go and abide together. He grabs a group of men. He begins to share all of His life with them. It's not a microwave process. It takes Jesus three years. It's going to take us at least three years to abide together and to go and bear much fruit and to disciple others. And so at New City Church, we, we're really passionate about this. We're really passionate about life-on-life -life discipleship, and we're gearing up for another season of that. And so you're going to hear us talking a little bit more about that. But I'm convinced that the vibrancy of our life in Jesus is only as rich as our abiding is. So let's get into it today. The mark one of a disciple that we're talking about today is this. Abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
So abiding in His Word is crucial. It's crucial because it proves that we're disciples. Of course, salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. But faith alone and grace alive in us looks like abiding in His Word is what Jesus is saying. So if we're not abiding in His Word, we're not staying in His Word, we must not be His disciples. That's how the logic goes. So this is so important because He goes on to say uh, that, that a knowledge of the truth is found in abiding in His Word. And then He goes on to say that your freedom in life is wrapped up in the fact that you need to know the truth and therefore you have to abide in His Word. So this is crucial for us to figure this out this morning. Because I've never met anyone that says, I want to live in bondage. I never, I've never met anyone that says, I want to live in spiritual you know, bondage and be wrapped up in that. Disciples find a home in God's Word, and God's Word finds a home in them. And so I've got two points today that I want to talk about as we delve into John chapter 8, 31 through 47. The first one is this. We've got to talk about the bad news. We've got to talk about the bad news first. The bad news is this, that we are all prone to abide in a different, in a different script, in a different narrative. We're all prone to abide in a different narrative. And the good news is that Jesus came to give us abundant life through abiding in Him. So let's talk about this, let's talk about this bad news first, because if we don't figure this out, it's really hard for us to discover what Jesus has for us. So abide in my word. The word that is used for word is a loaded term. It is a term that no English word or even group of English words can define what this word means. It's, it's the word logos. Logos. Now, uh, we use it to mean word, but it means so much more than this. In, in Greek culture, when the Bible was written, Greek culture kind of permeated the culture. The logos was kind of the, the secret sauce to, to aligning everything in the world. So all of the philosophy that was birthed out of, uh, out of the Greek culture had this, had this idea of logos. We've got we to figure out what is holding all things together. And they, for the most part, thought that that was found through this secret knowledge that we now would define as Gnosticism. And so this, when Jesus uses this word, <clears throat> he says, you know, I, he, he says, I am the word. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm, I'm the word. In John 1, he says that. And then he says, we have to abide in that word. We have to, and so in his word... And what we mean by word, it's collective. He doesn't say abide in my words. In my word, so meaning everything that Jesus comes to show us, which we find out in Luke 24, is everything that's in the Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus. There's not one page that's not about Jesus. All of the letters in the Bible should be read because they're all about Jesus. Luke 24 says that Jesus was meeting with his disciples. Or he, he was following his disciples after the ascension, and they were on the road to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, he was, he was kind of talking to them, and they were telling him about how sad they were that Jesus died. They didn't know who Jesus was, and he was walking with them. And it's, the Scriptures say something along the lines of, he showed them basically how the whole Bible pointed to him. The whole Bible is about Jesus, church. And so when we... Abide in my word means that we get a knowledge of who God is through knowing the scriptures. So, here comes Jesus in and he says, I am the Logos. I'm the word. I came to tabernacle among you. And, you know, 
So then Jesus kind of goes on with these, these so-called believers in John 8. It says some people believed in him, and so he kind of pressed them a little further. And he says basically, hey guys, you were born living in a different script. He, he, he's, he's saying you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What they hear when they, when they hear Jesus say this is like, okay, Jesus is saying that we're actually enslaved right now. And they go on this kind of physical tirade of like, hey, we're not enslaved to anyone. And Jesus is talking about spiritual enslavement. That you, in John 3, would go on to say that you have to be born again. So he's talking about this spiritual enslavement. So Jesus had to tell them the bad news, and they're not getting what that bad news is. And so Jesus presses a little further, and he says, listen, you're children of the devil. And you know how I know that you're children of the devil? Because I came from the Father, and his word is, is who I am. And my word doesn't have a place in your heart. And so that's how I know you're children of the devil. Because my word doesn't have a place in your heart. So the difference in getting the gospel and missing the gospel completely is 18 inches. You've probably heard this said before. The difference in heaven and hell is 18 inches. The, di- the distance between your, he- your head and your heart. So these guys knew about the word. They could quote the Torah to you, Okay. They know the word better than all of us put together, these guys do. It's part of their culture, oral tradition, memorizing the word. But it didn't lead to a knowledge of who Jesus was and his supremacy and majesty. So it was useless because the Spirit had not made it alive inside of them. Jesus desires to take up real estate in your heart, church. He, he desires to, to own, to guide, to rule your heart, as Andrew Murray said, to tabernacle in you, to make his home in you. But to understand his heart, we have to speak the same language. You know what the language of heaven is? It's the scriptures, it's the word of Jesus. That's how we know who God is. And the Spirit comes to translate that, to work that into us through the word. So how deep is the gospel in you? How do you resonate with the Word of God? Do you know that Jesus wants to be so near to you this morning? He wants His Word to find a place in your heart this morning. He wants to share that life with you, but His Word has to take precedence in us. So as He's talking about bondage here in John 8, I just thought, hey man, let's just ask, what is bondage? Because I'm convinced that each and every one of us is in bondage if the Word of God is not abiding inside of us. And so, this is all of our stories. We're all in bondage. So, quickly, I think there's two types of bondage, if we could boil it down. One is this, uh, maybe we could define it as spiritual blindness. This is uh, an inability to see. I mean, when Jesus, in the same breath in John 8, when Jesus says, hey, you're not getting the gospel, you're enslaved. It's the same day, probably just an hour or so later, that he heals a blind man, right? And there's this big hoopla about him healing on the Sabbath. I think it was a picture to point back at what he was talking about in John 8. That we're all spiritually blind unless the Holy Spirit comes and wakes us up and God's Word finds us a place in our hearts. So one type of bondage is spiritual blindness. This is, this is folks that really 
aren't yet believers. They're spiritually blind. They cannot see the things of God. These are the people that Jesus was encountering in John chapter 8. They knew about God, but they didn't know God. So this really has to do more with our justification before God. The second type of spiritual bondage uh, is maybe spiritual unresponsiveness, we could call. Maybe a hardness of heart. Now you and I, as our time uh, walking with Jesus on this earth, will drift into times of spiritual unresponsiveness. And our hearts will grow hard. It's, it's just like what Mark uh, chapter 9 says about the guy that, you know, when Jesus asks him if he wants to heal his son, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. This is how you and I walk as Christians daily. I believe there's a lot of things I believe about you, God, and your word is residing in my heart, but there are also some places that are dark and have yet to be awakened. I believe, help my unbelief. And so what I'm about to talk about will address both of those. I don't know where you're at today. We all have to be awakened by the Spirit of God for the Word of God to take a place in our heart. But then we also have to fight to abide. We, we, we fight against the unbelief with the power of the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus' words are true. So, <clears throat> people that are bound... How do you know if you're bound up right now? Maybe in spiritual blindness or spiritual unresponsiveness. How do you know if you're, bl- if, you're, if you're bound right now? Denial. Denial. Maybe the first step is, to, is, is like these guys. They were in denial when Jesus says, hey, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. We hear that. It's, incredible. it's incredibly good news to us, right? We'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. It's the gospel to us. These guys found it condemning. Because they didn't want to believe that they were bound up in anything. So if you're in denial this morning, saying, like, what are you talking about, Ryan? I'm not in, I'm not in spiritual bondage. I'm not wrapped up in sin. If your posture is first to defend yourself, it's probably the first sign that you might be in some spiritual bondage right now that you're not even aware of. Denial. Second one is this, an inaccurate picture of God. So you see God as this taskmaster. It's incredibly difficult for you to find joy in His name because you think that He's always so mad at you. He's always so frustrated with you. He doesn't really love you unless you're performing well. There's some spiritual bondage you've got to come out of there. Unforgiveness. It's dwelling in your heart. There's this person, this situation, this instance... And you just, you can't, you cannot forget it, and you cannot forgive. That's a sign that you're in bondage because bitterness is swelling inside of you. It's growing. Unforgiveness is soil. It's ripe soil for the enemy to grow uh, unbelief in. It really is. Maybe you've got unconfessed sin going on. There are some things in your life that you'll be vulnerable about, you'll tell people about, but there's this whole other side of things that you kind of like to live in the shadows on. There's some spiritual bondage going on there. You're not being set free by the Gospel. And the last one which has really confronted me lately is this, you've made vows before God. What is a vow? We don't use that language that much. A vow is a promise before the face of God. Now, not all vows are bad. But Jesus comes and He says, hey, listen, you no longer have to make these vows. Just let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. But we make these, we kind of make these, uh, these promises. Uh, sometimes we're not even aware of them. 
And we say things like this, I'm never going to open my heart or my life to that person again because they've hurt me so badly. And we make this vow to God. And it, and it kind of holds us, it kind of holds us in this place of bondage because we're not letting Jesus into that part of our life. A, a vow that I've recently made that I've been working through over the last three weeks, I've worked through it with some of you guys, um, is that I have to be strong. I have to carry everything on my back. You see, as a, as a young man, uh, my father uh, was out of the picture pretty early on, and uh, I just began to build this mantra in my life that I've got to carry the load. And then I'll do whatever it takes, throw it on my back, we'll make it happen. And while that's got me a long way in life, and I'm grateful for the gifts that God's given me through that, there's also a dark side of it, which does not let Jesus into weakness. Does not let Jesus into the postures of my heart that are a little bit weaker, because I don't want to, I don't want to see to be in, I don't want to be seen to be in, insufficient, because insufficiency for me in my story has always led to disaster. But I got to remember that Jesus is the one that's holding me. Jesus is the one that is holding my life together because I'm found in Him. Other maybe uh, other vows. I'm never going to forgive that person. Never going to. I can't do it. Those are holding us captive. And as we look at uh, places like Leviticus 5, and there's, other, there's other vows that we make. I've just listed a few. Places like Leviticus 5 basically say, if God reveals to you that you've made one of these vows, one of these kind of promises with an undercurrent of not letting God into that part of your life, you've got to bring that before the Lord. You've got to confess it. Because as 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, it's conditional. If you confess your sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have to bring it into the light. The script of our lives have to be flipped. Because we are all born living in a different narrative. And your, your, uh, your family of origin, the circumstances of the relationships that you've been in, uh, lots of things come into play. Your, your sinful proclivities, they all play into the narrative that you're living out of. And Jesus says, you need a different logos. You need a different word. And so if you want to be set free, you've got to take up my word and let it find a home in you. I was thinking about this with my son Caden. My son Caden loves to build Legos. He is... I mean, like, he'll get a 7- to 12-year-old Lego set, and he'll build it. He's 5. I mean, he can do it. There was this one particular day that he had saved up a lot of money for... Guys, okay, let me hold it. So, did you know that Lego sets can be retired? Did y'all know that? What that basically means is they stop making them. You have to find them on eBay and pay a lot more money for them. And so, I had to find this retired Lego set that he had seen at another friend's house called the Joker Funhouse. So, Joker Funhouse, it's got all these booby traps, and the Joker is kind of the main character of it. It's a lot of fun. So, he gets the Joker Funhouse, and he is so excited to build the Joker Funhouse that he doesn't wait for me to get home. And this is a really complex set, the biggest one he's ever built. So, he begins building it. I get home from work, and he is like, he's frustrated. He's like, comes downstairs, he's kind of, he's kind of you know, his demeanor is just frustrated. And I said, Caden, what's going on, bud? He said, the Joker Funhouse is broke. He's like, I don't even want it anymore. Like, okay, buddy, like, 
let's look at it. And so I go upstairs. He says, see, look, it doesn't, this booby trap doesn't even work. And see, what had happened was he had gotten so excited about it that he had skipped the instructions. So he just kind of looked at the picture and said, I can build this thing. And so what we had to do is deconstruct almost the entire Lego set and then go through and rebuild it. Friends, the Word of God has to do the same thing in you. It first deconstructs you. It first shows you that you need Jesus. That you need a different narrative. And so when, when Jesus reveals that to you, do not be afraid. Because He has a storyline filled with life that He loves to give to His children. We just have to remain in His Word. He's eager to rebuild us into the image of God that we were always created to be in. Not the distorted image that we've assumed as we've been living life on this earth. Jesus wants to put us back together. Secondly, here's the good news. Jesus came to give us abundant life through abiding in His life. Have you ever met someone who's just come to faith in Jesus before? Ever met someone that is just like ripe and everything is fresh and new? Well, my missional community, we have a young lady that has just come to faith in Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's beautiful because she's learning how to read the Scriptures and learning what the Gospel is. And, and so we did this exercise on last Tuesday night at my MC where I just said, hey, I want you to, I want you to spend five or six minutes looking through the New, the New Testament uh, and just look, look for promises that are now ours in our identity in Jesus. Like They now explain who we are because of the resurrection. And so she begins reading the part that, that she found and wanted to share with us. And she said something that was amazing. She said, you know, it's not that I, that I have to know God. Like, that's not, like, it's true for, for eternal life, I have to know. She goes, but I want to know God. So there's a difference in it being dutiful and it being life-giving. She says, basically, I want to know how God has created me to live in His kingdom because I finally found that the freedom that He wants to give to me is more beautiful than anything I've ever experienced in life. And I only know how I'm created to live if I'm in the Word of God because it tells me about who Jesus is and what His life looks like inside of me. So John 8, 31 says, If you abide in My Word, you'll live. His Word must become my Word. Now listen, so many times we try to get nourishment from someone else's feast. You know, it's like, I love this place called Fogo de Chao. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a Brazilian steakhouse. You have this little thing you put on the table, and if you leave it green, uh, they just keep bringing you meat, like as long as you're there. It's amazing. <laughs> you turn it red. I don't know why you'd ever do that, but you turn it over on the red side, and they stop bringing it. I, I've never, I haven't experienced that, but... Um, I mean, you like get the meat sweats, you know, guys, guys know what I'm talking about. But anyway, so it's like going to Fogo de Chao and like me watching you eat and expecting to get full. It sounds crazy, right? That's what it's like whenever you try to feast on someone else's meal with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that preaching and teaching isn't important. It's a means of grace. It's how we access the grace of God. But that feast is for you every day of your life. Because you don't just abide Sunday to Sunday. You don't just skip seven days at a time and you're spiritually malnourished by the time you get to Saturday. His Word is designed to dwell in you every day. In fact, Colossians 3.16 says this, 
let the, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of Christ is designed to dwell in you. Jesus loves you. He wants to be with you and to set you free. Truth. Truth is a person, not a book. Okay, so here's, here's another side of this, abiding in His Word. It's, it's possible to know the Bible and not know Jesus. Did you know that? It's possible to know the Bible and not know Jesus. Do you know nearly every scholar of the Greek and Hebrew languages, nearly every one of them that's really good at their work, they're all unbelievers. It'll blow your mind when you go to seminary and you're, you're, reading, you're reading, this guy's like on point about the language, but then if he says anything that's a commentary about the spiritual implications of this, you're like, man, this guy's way off. It's, it's crazy. It's possible to know the Word and to not know Jesus. It's possible to know the Bible and to not know Jesus. And this is what Jesus is contending with in John 8. These guys know the Word. They know, they know about God. And they do not know Him. When the Scriptures talk about the Word, it points us to the person of Jesus. And so, so what's, the, what's the prescription for us actually knowing Jesus instead of knowing about Jesus? I don't think we can, I don't think we're supposed to approach the Scriptures like a vending machine. What do you do when you go to a vending machine? You put in your quarters, or it's like dollars now, those things are getting expensive, and, and you select what you want and it spits it out. God does not want a transactional relationship with you. The Scriptures say that He bought you with a price. You are no longer your own, but you belong to Him. And so as we approach the Scriptures, whether you do it in the morning or at night or all along your day, you are in a relationship. And when you're in a relationship, it's not always about getting something from one another. It's about just being together. Now you're better off because of the relationship or you wouldn't have it in the first place. When I sit down at breakfast with my kids... My kids don't say, well, that was a waste of time. You know, Dad didn't, Dad didn't give me, you know, the, the scrambled eggs that I wanted this morning. He gave me bacon instead. Now, they would never say that, obviously. But um, it's about the relationship. We're enjoying the time together. And so I want to challenge you to approach the Word of God in such a way that you're focused on a relationship. And that you don't walk away saying, well, I didn't get anything out of that. That was a waste of time. That reveals a consumeristic nature inside of us. But Jesus came to have a relationship with you. There's a few scriptures that talk about how the Word of God dwells in us. I want to read them really quickly. James 1.21 says this. Now, listen, listen to the, uh, the, the tense and the, uh, uh, the, the verb tenses here. Receive with meekness the implanted Word that is able to save your souls. Okay, Deuteronomy 30, 14 goes on to say this, The Word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The Word, Jesus, is implanted inside of us through the scriptures. It's like when we look at Romans chapter 12 and we see uh, that we're, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We look at that word renewing, it's something that we already obtain. 
It's not this, it's not this continual activity that we have to do to try to renew ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the active agent in renewing your mind. And God gives you the gift of Himself when you come to Him and faith in Him. But when we get into the Word of God and we have the Spirit alive in us, it's like the secret decoder ring. You know what I mean? It's like He is making it come alive and be inside of us. And this becomes very food for our souls. So what happens when we don't abide in His Word? This is the scary part, if I'm honest with you. What happens when we don't abide in His Word? And the majority of the work of the enemy, I'm convinced, centers around us not abiding in the Word of God. Because, because the, the devil knows that when we don't abide in the Word, that we're not going to experience joy in the fruit of the Spirit because we cannot. We have to abide in the Word. I mean, think about, think about the first temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's a temptation to disbelieve the Word. God did not really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree. Or you couldn't eat of any tree. It's, it's, a, it's a temptation to disbelieve the Word of God. Think about Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4, when, when the enemy comes and he tempts him. And when Jesus' response to him, because Jesus is hungry, he's been fasting for 40 days, and the devil comes to him and he says, you know, if you're God, turn these stones into bread. And the Scriptures say Jesus was hungry, right? He'd been fasting for 40 days. And Jesus' response to him is, man cannot live on bread alone, but out of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He puts the devil back in his place because that was the first temptation to disbelieve the Word of God. Jesus knew where spiritual strength comes from. When I think about this, I look at Matthew 13. Now this is... <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't plan to talk to you about this until this morning, but I think it's really important. So I, I think we do not consider spiritual warfare enough, especially when it comes to abiding in the Word of God. Matthew 13, 18-23, Jesus gives this parable. It's called the parable of the sower. What I want to read to you is Jesus explaining the parable that He just gave. So I'm going to read it. I want you to listen to how He talks about the Word and what the responses are in light of that Word. So here's what He says. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the Word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what has been sown in his heart. So there's the premise is there's these four types of soils that the, the Word of God, the seed of the Word, falls on. There's the path, there's the rocky soil, there's the thorny soil, and there's the good soil. So what he says about the path is this, is that when anyone hears the Word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They're, they're jacked up. They're excited. Yet he ha has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, it immediately falls away. So it springs up and then it dies. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Jesus is concerned with fruit. He's, he's concerned with bearing much fruit in you. It's really amazing to look at this because the devil is really present in all of these to some degree. He, here's what you need to know when you open the Bible and you seek to be with Jesus, is the devil is so, so, so ready to snatch that away from your heart because he knows it will give you life. And all he wants to do is give you death. He's ready to snatch it away. And so what's our response? How are we to live in the midst of this temptation? Ephesians 6 tells us this. I'm just going to read a few verses, 10 through 14 here. I want you to notice the activity of the person that's described here. What are they supposed to do? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We'd agree with that. We want that. So to do that, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, there is a lot going on. There's probably more going on that we can't see than there is that we can see. That's the reality of walking in this world and trying to walk in Jesus' name with Jesus' word abiding in us. So what do we do? He goes on to say this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand it in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So, I want you to know the, notice the activity. The activity is to take up the armor and stand. It's not to fight. The fighting is done in the remaining and standing in Jesus. That's the work. Notice the first thing that he tells us to put on for the armor. The belt. Now, what's the belt do? If I were to take off my belt, you would know. The belt holds your pants up, right? It holds everything together. The truth of God, the Word of God, the Logos of Jesus holds everything together in your life. Everything. That's why the devil wants to snatch it away from you with everything that he, he's capable of. Our hearts become harder and harder the longer that we live in bondage. And the soil becomes harder and harder. So friends, I beg you today, whatever the bondage is in your life, bring it before Jesus. Bring it before Jesus. Jesus invites us to marinate in His Word, to soak in it. Eugene Peterson says that by meditating on the Word of Jesus, it's like what a dog does to a bone. So what's a dog do to a bone? By prayer through the Holy Spirit, you gnaw and chew on God's Word until it metabolizes you and gets into your bloodstream. That's what it looks like to work to remain. You take it in, and it's, it was once a hobby to just kind of flip through the Scriptures, but now it is your only source of nourishment because you realize that you can't live in Jesus' kingdom with anything else 
other than his word. So my prayer for our church is this, is that we abide in the word of Jesus and that his words would become our words. And that we'd be so caught up in who Jesus is that we'd speak the word without even knowing it. That his words would take the place of our words and be seasoned with grace and life. So what's it mean for you today to abide in his word? Maybe, maybe you know about Jesus, but you don't really know him. Maybe that's you. He's a stranger, although you're always around his people. If that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. Because I want you to know Jesus. And I want you to know, I want you to have the freedom to know that you have the right to know Jesus. Or maybe you're beginning to know Jesus, but you're often just a visitor of his. So you remember his sayings every once in a while, but his word hasn't really embodied your life. I want to pray for us. So let's, let's go to the Lord together and pray. Jesus, we, we have to abide in you. The first step for us to become disciples of Jesus is to abide in your word. Not just words about you on paper, but the fulfillment of your spirit in our souls. So God, I pray for this church. I pray for us that we would, that we would gnaw on God's word, that we would marinate in God's word. And Lord, I pray for those in here this morning that, and maybe they're in, just, they're in bondage right now, and maybe they're just realizing it. There's, there's been so much buildup of the wrong narrative alive in their heart that they're hard. I pray that your spirit would soften like only you can, and you have the power to do that. And that the word of God would fall on the good soil of a repentant heart this week. Jesus, I pray for those that don't yet know you in this room. Pray that they would take the claims that you make seriously, that you came to give life, not just to give enough to get by, but to give abundant life that is non-circumstantially filled with joy. Jesus, meet us. Birth in our hearts a desire to respond to what's been revealed. To walk in you. To walk in the light as you are in the light. All the days of our lives. Soften us and make us a people that can be used by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.